Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. If you're not working in libraries, you may not have heard much about the recent book challenges being coordinated by far-right hate groups. I hope you've listened to my episode with Martha Hickson, though. She's the school library media specialist who has talked about her experiences being called a pedophile and a pornographer by people who wanted to ban books that she selected for her students. My guest today is teaching future school library media specialists. I can't wait to find out what her students are thinking about the current environment in school libraries. Dr. Andrea Jamison is assistant professor of school librarianship at my beloved undergrad alma mater, Illinois State University. She's a former teacher and library media specialist in the Chicago public school system. Dr. Jamison, welcome to the librarian linkover. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us what courses you teach and talk a little bit about other responsibilities or projects you have, like committees, writing, speaking, et cetera. Okay. So because I have a sort of an interesting background in librarianship, I've worked as a self-contained classroom teacher. I've worked as a school library media specialist. I've worked for a very brief period. Um, it was a fun, albeit brief period, as a public librarian. And I also had time in academic libraries. So because of my experience, I have kind of a dual role at ISU. So I work with the undergraduate students. I teach some of the undergrad courses. I teach the introduction to elementary education, as well as a social studies methods course, which is very interesting because I think that social studies uh, really works well for librarians in terms of the research aspect. And then I also teach, I work with the graduate students who are working towards their library certification or their endorsement in librarianship. So I also teach several of the library classes, which includes the introduction to librarianship. I also teach the um, selection and use of young adult materials, which is a fun class. That's the course I'm teaching right now. And I do a management course. So ISU endorsement program, there are eight courses. I teach about three or four of those courses. Management course is key. I'm glad you're teaching that. I'm glad that's an option. Yeah, and that has kind of um, led me to some of the additional work that I'm doing outside of ISU. So I do have a book that's coming out shortly. I wrote the book for the Beta Phi Mu Scholar Series. It's titled, uh, it'll be published by Roman and Littlefield. And it's titled Decentering Whiteness in uh, School Libraries Through Inclusive Policy Development. So uh, that's something else that I'm doing. And then I'm working with a lot of the organizations in terms of trying to advocate for libraries and the rights of our students that we serve. When does your book come out? Um, I am currently working on the editing portion. So I'm so okay. grateful that I have um, the Beta Phi Mu. Uh, that uh, group, that board, they are uh, an extremely grateful, flexible board. I say that now because I'm about 20 days past due with my edits. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully I'm, I'm looking to have all of my edits completed by the 15th of this month. And so I'm hoping that with by spring, late spring, early summer, that it should be out. And sort of along those lines, your research interests include examining the interplay of race, power, and privilege in children's books. Can you talk about why that is important to be to be studied and discussed? Yes. So um, I talk a little bit about this in some uh, one of the TED Talks that I did. And uh, it is about my history growing up as a child. I, I grew up in a, a impoverished community, so it was socially and economically disadvantaged. But as a young girl, uh, African-American female, I was, a, I was a voracious reader. I was an avid reader, and I loved to read. But in the 80s, um, I, the selection of what I had to read was very limited in terms of its representation of uh, BIPOC community members. And I, I use the term was very loosely because, you know, to some degree it still is. But, you know, I was given a lot of books to read, like, you know, The Adventures of Puck Finn or um, Dear God, Are You There? It's Me, Margaret. Or, uh, and I, I laugh about this now, but I probably read every sweet Valley High book <laughs> that was ever published. <laughs> but what I didn't have the opportunity to do was to read books, uh, particularly while I was in elementary school, that really 
gave me a reflection. Levine Sims Bishop says that books should serve as windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors because books are affirming, they validate uh, the reader, particularly when the characters within those books reflect the reader's uh, background, ethnicity, culture, and or experiences. And then the books can also serve as win windows because it allows you to look into the world's of people with dissimilarities. And so I never had those opportunities and it wasn't until I was entering high school where I had a family member who gave me uh, several books as a graduation present. And in one of those books, I still remember it to this day, it's called Their Eyes Watching God. And that's by Zora Neale Hurston. And that book left such an impression on me that I still until this day, I remember the first line of that book that says, ships at a distance have every man wish on board. And so it was through that book that really put me on this path for the work that I now do. Because when I became a classroom teacher, I worked in a school where there were hardly any books. It was the, the school that I, the first school that I worked in was a school that was in a predominantly African-American community but the books on the shelves did not reflect the community that was being served by that school. And that was just very, you know, peculiar to me. You know, as a child, I didn't know any better. I was kind of puzzled, you know, why aren't there any people of color, particularly African-Americans on library shelves? Early on, I didn't even know to ask that question. I just dealt with what was given to me. But when I became a teacher and I started to see those same types of inequities manifest on the shelves, my students had, sim had similar experiences to me and those experiences, the experiences that I had occurred like 15, 20 years earlier. And so I started to question like, well, what's happening in the publishing world and libraries that there just aren't any books that an African-American or a Latinx community member can go and find books that represent them. And so that started the question for my research. And that's how I ended up in libraries. And I think it's a very important conversation. And I know we'll get into this uh, possibly, but censorship and the lack of diversity that's on book, that's in, happening with books, uh, it's really the same conversations. It's just uh, two different sides of the same coin, right? And so that's a very important conversation for us to have given that you know, we've been having these conversations since the early 20th century, and these types of inequities still exist on library shelves. I remember reading, I don't know how long ago, maybe 10 years ago, about this young African-American girl, maybe in grade school, who was tired of reading books about white boys and their dogs. So she started collecting books about Black kids, and she had hundreds of books. I need to look that up and see. Oh, she, I remember thinking, she's going to be in charge of something someday. That's yeah. what I thought when I read that story. I need to look into her, see what she's yeah. doing now. That's that's Marley Diaz. And I think that that was a great work that she started. And I believe she's still continuing that work. And again, you know, you asked why is it important? Um, when I started my, my dissertation, again, the book that I'm writing really has evolved from the dissertation work that I've done because I've been looking to see how libraries either perpetuate or mitigate those diversity and equities. You're talking about, I was in grammar school in the eighties. I started teaching in, so the early eighties I was in grammar school. I started teaching in the late nineties and the early two thousands. So in my own experience, I'm looking at, you know more than a decade of seeing the same type of inequity, seeing the same things occur in libraries. And then when I started to do research for my dissertation, that, that gap, that time gap went back even further because then I learned about uh, the seminal work of Nancy Larrick, who in the 1960s wrote an article in the Saturday Review called The All-White World of Children's Literature. And that book really addressed the fact that books were absent of uh, children of color. And one of the things that Nancy Larrick wrote is that over 6 million children are learning to read and write in the American school system using books that either scarcely mentions them or just ignores them altogether. So now fast forward, we're in 19, I'm sorry, we're in 2023. <laughs> so we're talking about, you know, more than half a century now, right? And so we have to ask ourselves as librarians these types of tough questions. If libraries are supposed to be a place that represents this idea of democracy where anybody 
can be able to go in and have access to different types of resources that can help them become well-rounded and educated and resources that have a variety of information and, and shows multiple sides of uh, points of view, then why, is there, why are there still inequities, right? And why have we been talking about these inequities for more than a quarter of a century? And change and progress is very slow, right? And so one of the things, and I think I'll just end it here, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, which I love reading the work of Dr. King, wrote a book called Why We Can't Wait. Right? So when we start talking about these challenges, the uptick in censorship challenges, and many of these challenges are aiming to remove books that are representative of BIPOC communities or the LGBTQIA plus community, we have to ask ourselves, what are we not doing to promote uh, diversity or equity in libraries? Because our current students and our future students and library users, they cannot afford to wait for us to get it right. So we need to do more and we need to do that now. <laughs> we need more people of color in publishing in leadership Absolutely. roles who understand the need to have a variety of books. Absolutely, I, I could not agree with you more. We need more people of color and, you know, and I think libraries, we have the power to, because of, you know, with the demise of brick and mortar uh, bookstores, if you think about where publishers are making the most money, they're making the most money from libraries. We have the budgets, we have the dollars, and we spend those dollars diligently uh, on books to support publishers, and we need to demand more from the publishing industry. Well, this is a whole other thing that we might get into a little bit later, but I don't understand why publishers are caving to these right-wing people, because like the, I was a director of a, a medium-sized public library or small to medium, we spend $50,000 on books, just my library. So imagine like most libraries are bigger than that. The amount, to your point, the amount of money public libraries spend on books. Why are publishers not up in arms and fighting these challenges? Because they're losing money. I don't, anyway, that's a whole, you know, that might be a whole other thing, but I don't understand. They're writing strongly worded letters. I mean, why aren't they in these board meetings? They need to send people to these board meetings because they're yeah. losing a pile of money. It just came out. I think it must have been first quarter numbers. Or, no, not for maybe it was. I don't remember what it was. I saw some numbers on like year to year numbers and publishing is down. They're losing yeah. money because libraries are not buying books just in case someone would complain. I mean, it's affecting. Anyway, this is my soapbox issue that people who don't use libraries, this affects them. They don't realize people who are challenging books and trying to tell us what we can't read, it affects everybody because there's less money going to be made, less books are sold, then less new books will get get purchased or less new books will get published. And it just, it goes, you know, everybody's affected by less books coming out. Yeah, it's a, anyway, it's a vicious so. cycle. And, and mm -hmm. I, you're, I think you're absolutely correct. But I also think that as librarians, part of that is our fault. And, you know, I'm very critical of this profession that I'm in, and I criticize it because I love it so much. And I think the potential for us to do so much is there. But I think part of that is our fault because we need to, we need to, to take, we need to leverage the advantage that we have in the economic investment that we make into publishing companies. And then we need to extend ourselves as partners to publishers and stop just seeing them as just vendors. And we need to open up that door for us to build a partnership because you're right, we do have the dollars. And when I was younger, my mother used to always say to me, it's the squeaky oil that gets the oil. And I think that, you know, we're making noise, but we have to not just make noise at, on, you know, Springfield and, you know, legislation that all of that is very important, but we have to build relationships everywhere. And that's with publishers, that's with parents, that's with stakeholders, that's with students. We have to build those those uh, relationships everywhere so that we're squeaking the loudest, <laughs> that makes sense. Well, and I also think, and then we'll move on to the next question, but even if you're not in a diverse community, you need to be reading diverse books. I was a public library director and it was mostly, both, both of them were mostly white communities. And I would buy books by diverse authors and I would just put them on the new bookshelf. I didn't put a big sign books sent in Haiti or, you know, I didn't, I was like, you have to be sneaky. Sometimes I would just put them on the new bookshelf. So all the community, they were reading these books with people of color set in Ghana or wherever. And they're like taking in the information 
with maybe not realizing they're taking information, but that maybe will help them learn about someone who's not like them. But I think we all need to be reading diverse books, no matter, no matter where you are. And the more books, diverse books we buy, that means we have, like you said, more buying power because it isn't about the money. They can't say that because they sell everything sells. So they can't say it's about the money. That's what they always go to. You know, no one will buy it. No one will watch. No one will. And it's not true because there's numbers that back that up. Absolutely. That's my, (laughs) my, my soapbox. Um, So back to, back to you, back to you. Um, So from talking with your students, why do teachers decide to further their education in libraries? I think it's a, it's a lot of different reasons. The one that comes up the most often uh, that I hear uh, is that somewhere along the line, the, the student who's pursuing librarianship met a librarian who really inspired them. So, you know, we are, the, our, we are, we are our best form of advertisement for this mm-hmm. question. And the thing about librarians, students are either going to remember you or not. <laughs> there isn't a middle road. If they remember you, they remember you because you were a really impactful, great librarian who made a difference in their life and they knew who you were. And visiting a library just wasn't a traditional prep period, just a moment to relieve uh, a teacher. Visiting a library was an experience where they felt like they learned and they grew. They grew and they were able to pursue things and topics that were of interest to them. And they were supported in being able to do that. If they don't remember you, it's because uh, maybe you didn't do anything that was memorable. So I often hear students say, yeah, I'm here because there was a librarian. And if, and if, it, if it wasn't a librarian in their childhood, it was a librarian while they were working as a teacher, because usually school librarians, they have an endorsement as a classroom teacher. They have a professional educator's uh, license. And so that's the, that's the main reason that I've heard. And then you have people like me, who I got into this field because of the inequities, right? I had a question. <laughs> I had a question that I wanted some answers to, like what's happening in libraries that the shelves <laughs> that I'm looking at in 1998 or 2000 still look like the shelves that I, I was looking at when I was in 1987, 1985, six. So I did it because I went into this because I wanted to advocate. I wanted to find out what was going on. And I didn't want to be someone that just criticized, but I did want to be someone that uh, to make a difference. And so with librarianship, I think people view us as these people, we're just keepers of books and we're not. <laughs> um, we're really the ones that hold society together uh, because we provide access to information and we help people navigate this, this huge world of information. And that information, particularly because of social media, it's so much of that. And, and we provide access to that information and we help students learn how to, to use that information correctly. Uh, I tell my students all the time that, you know, our goal is to make sure that we first help students become seekers of information. And then once they become seekers then they become users of that information and after they become users of that information, they become disseminators of information. And without information, the world cannot continue to, to be as uh, thriving, cannot thrive as it, as it, as it is. And so, we're not just the keepers of books. And I think that so many librarians are now starting to, so many teachers who are drawn into the field are starting to see librarians as leaders in society. You know, leaders within the school, leaders, leaders in society in terms of, you know, making a difference. I, um, I read an article, I think, I think it was in school library journals and it may have been something around the movers and shakers, but it was about librarians who are making a difference, right? Um, Censorship is one of the big social justice issues of our time. And librarians are coming to the forefront and we're like, we surprise you. We're just not that person behind the desk saying, shh, be quiet. We're that person that's out there fighting for the First Amendment rights of everyone in our libraries. I always say librarians are leaders, whether they think they are or whether they want to be. Yeah. They still are. We're leaders. And I think people are starting to see that. And that's what's drawing more people, I believe, into this field. We need them. Yeah. (laughs) So here's kind of the, you know, the current topic um, going on. Many school librarians are under attack for simply doing their jobs. What kind of discussions do you have with your students regarding dealing with boards of trustees, book challenges, and serving a school community? 
So yeah, that is a loaded, it's a great question. It's a loaded <laughs> question because, you know, uh, some conversations that we have, uh, I've let my students know what, what is said in this class conversation stays, in this class conversation. But we do, we, we talk about some of the uncomfortable uh, realities of this profession. And, you know, sometimes you have, you have librarians who don't want to lose their job. Right, you have librarians. So when we talk about self-censorship, we don't just talk about the fact that we have these groups that feel that some books are trying to indoctrinate students, and so they're pushing back on uh, these books. And you know, I'd always argue that the same people who are saying that get these books off the shelf because they're attempting to indoctrinate our students don't realize that when you control narratives, that in and of itself is a form of indoctrination when you only give people one side of the story. So we talk about that, but we also talk about the hard realities of that. We can't just be upset at the censors, these outside groups that are trying to, uh, to threaten the First Amendment rights of our students. And I, I emphasize that greatly. Um, but we gotta talk about ourselves because librarians are also guilty of self-censorship. And so I tell students, this is this is a pivotal moment in your, your career because you have to decide whether or not this is a career that you really want to go into it because if you become a librarian, we have a professional obligation. And our professional obligation is to make sure that we provide access to our users so that they can be effective and efficient users of information. And in order for them to be effective and efficient users of information, we can't control the information that they get, right? <laughs> the Library Bill of Rights articulate what First Amendment rights look like in libraries for our uh, students and for our users. We have to be committed to that. Once we get in libraries, our role is to make sure that we are protecting the rights of our students. And we have to understand that the only one that can circumvent those rights are parents. But parents can only make decisions and circumvent the rights for their own student. They don't have a right to do it for someone else's student. So who is going to be that person that really makes sure that the library functions the way it's intended to do? And that is the librarian. So I tell students, you know, you have to really decide about the risk and if it's something that you want to be. Now, everyone doesn't have to be the type of librarian that I am, because, you know, I've been in my career, I'm kind of settled. I can really be a little bit more, um, you know, vocal in, in how I advocate for libraries, uh, which is something else that I talk about, because I think that academic librarians, I think that uh, library instructors, uh, I think that public librarians, we have to rally around our new career librarians, right? The ones, the ones that we've been in this profession for a while. We have to use our voice and we have to kind of use our position of, of privilege. And I use that term loosely because we do to some end when you've been a librarian for 20, 30 years and you kind of settled in your career and you know, you've passed tenure and you're not afraid of speaking up and getting, you know, the possibility of getting fired because you know it'll be a real challenge for those that's on that other end trying to come at you for your job. We have to support the newer librarians and we have to tell the newer librarians, look, this is the job. And, and once reach out to those that can support you, reach out to library organizations, let them conduct these fights for you. I tell my students, I will share this. I tell my students, if you are afraid to speak out and advocate for yourself, anonymously contact organizations that will do it for you, right? If there's some, some book bannings that's going on, some censorship that's happening and it, ha and it hasn't happened in policies, um, where it's, it's violating po policies, then you need to make sure that you are telling someone so that we can put this on the radar, our radar so that the Office of Intellectual Freedom can know the types of battles and you can have these more vocal librarians to come out and speak against it. I wrote, I wrote for Old Lowe's for a while and for their uh, information freedom blog and I didn't have a problem calling out anyone. So that's kind of some of what we talk about. Um, but then there's other ways that librarians, newer librarians can also battle. They can fight and don't have to risk losing their job. They can do that through transparency, trying to build partnerships with their administration, try to make sure that the administration understand their roles. Because oftentimes administrators will say, well, you know, I don't want to get any lawsuits. I don't want pushback from parents. Well, parents are not the only ones that can sue you. 
And um, my friend Casey Boyd talks about this always. You know, the NAACP, the NAACP will sue you, right? The Urban League will sue you. You will get lawsuits from other, other organizations committed to equity. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> We really could talk about this for like eight hours because I really think you have to have a job, but you also have to do your job. Yes. I walked away from the job because I wasn't comfortable what was going on. It's very difficult to explain that in an interview. It's very difficult to not have a job. I had to take a job I didn't necessarily maybe wouldn't have wanted because I needed a job. But at the end of the day, I wasn't comfortable with some of the things that were going on and I couldn't stay there. And I mean, I can't, I really try not to judge librarians who go with go along with this stuff. Cause I get, if you have a family, I didn't have a family. I get, if you're the breadwinner, but you, part of the job as a librarian is exactly what you said. You have, that is your job. Your job isn't to not buy books because of being, someone's going to, you know, get mad. Or, I mean, I've had a hundred people come and holler at me at a public board meeting. I would not recommend it. It's not the time of your life, but you know, when you make a decision, you are, you know, you made the right decision. It's fine. And if you have a collection that nobody's challenging, you do not have a good collection, right? <laughs> because we cannot please everyone, right? And so right. if your collection is pleasing everyone, then that means you have a safe collection. And you're only pleasing the people that are in your community because really the libraries have to reflect the, the pluralistic society in which we live and not just the communities that we serve. And you're really doing your students a disadvantage. I fight and I'm so vocal for libraries because I'm not just fighting as a librarian, I'm also fighting as a parent. I have a son, I have an African-American son who I think deserves to have representations of uh, his world, his experiences within books. Um, and I think he needs to be able to explore topics that are going to be of interest to him. And you're right, you said something earlier, you said that books are not, everybody should be reading diverse books, everyone, because it promotes this idea of cultural competence and mutual respect. If we want to make sure that our students can really succeed in a diverse world, we have to prepare that. We have to prepare them from that diverse world. And the way that we prepare them for that diverse world is to let them have information that gives them a glimpse of what society looks like so that when they go out into the real world outside of their communities, they, they don't come across situations that's uncomfortable for them, but they can think back and say, you know what, I read about this, or I learned about this, or this character in this book, right? Because we learn through the lives of these fictitious characters. Um, so I think it's very important that we do make sure that we decide, look, this is my job, this is my role, and we make that role, right? Um, so I think it's a good thing. I, I tell my students, when you are having challenges, it's a good thing. The bad thing is when you're not prepared for those challenges. Right. So know that challenges are going to be part of the job and don't run from it, right? Know what your responsibility is stand on it. I tell my students all the time, get those policies in writing, get them backed by the board so they will have teeth and then make sure that you hold everybody accountable because at the end of the day, no one is really mad that you did your job. <laughs> you can't be mad at me because I'm doing my job. And I think the, the disconnect is, is that oftentimes parents, uh, other teachers, and sometimes administrators, they don't know what our job is. And so our role as a librarian is to come into a facility and say, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my role. And I think in the, the, the long run, administrators can appreciate that. I had a conversation with a student that says, look, I had an administrator that came into my classroom, I mean, my library and pulled a book off the shelf. And they, because a parent questioned the book and they just snatched it off the shelf. And I say, well, you know what? That's an opportunity for you to sit down and have a one-on-one. -on -one. You can't make them put it back on the shelf, but you can have a one-on-one -on -one and let them know that, look, not only can parents sue, but you have organizations like the Urban League and the NAACP, they will sue as well. The American Library Association will send out a letter. They will publicly blast this school and you can get negative attention. Um, and that has happened. That happened with the Katy School District, where the Katy School District pulled the book, uh, The Hate You Give, off the shelf. And the libraries and librarians made so much noise 
that we, you know, we talked about it on Twitter. We talked about it on social media. The American Library Association wrote a letter publicly condemning what the Katy School District did. I wrote a blog about that titled, Oh, the Hate She Received. And guess what? The Katy School District, because of that negative attention, they reversed that decision, right? Uh, and just yanking the book off the shelf without going through a process. So again, us letting our administrators know what our professional responsibilities are really can help the school in the long run. You can help the administrators avoid problems and you can come together and you can sort of think out the best approach to deal with these censorship challenges and you can put them in writing, right? And I think even if you don't have kids in school, your tax dollars are funding these libraries and school libraries. So you still have a say. You still should yeah. be paying attention. Yeah. You need to go to the board meeting because you know what? I've worked for public library boards. They don't want anybody coming to those meetings. Yeah. So you go to that library board, they're going to be like, oh, great. Someone's here to pay attention to what we're doing. Right. You write something down. Maybe just, you know, take a minute. Say your, say your piece. It's very empowering. You will feel very powerful if you stand yeah. up to a board meeting and speak for a minute. Usually you get a couple minutes, speak for a minute. Write some notes, make some bullet points, speak for a minute, and then sit down. It's very powerful. It's powerful, it's powerful and it makes a difference. Because when you do that, then some child, because we know that in the LGBT community, you have a lot of students that are part of that community that commit suicide because they feel like their lives are so... Um, outside of the norm, right? That, that something is intrinsically uh, wrong when we don't affirm identities that are in society. But somewhere down along, the speech that you gave in front of some board, even if it fell on deaf ears, then you know that you have made a difference somewhere in the world because someone else is going to put, make that book available, make a book that represents uh, the, the lives of the, the diverse lives of so many students and they'll read that book. And they'll feel affirmed and they'll feel validated. And because that book wasn't taken off of that shelf, because, you know, everything that we do is interconnected because someone stood out and they spoke and it inspired somebody else to stand out and to speak. And now books are getting into the hands of children who say, you know what, this character is just like me. And it's helping them as they go through their psychosocial development where Eric Erickson talks about the, you know, students go through, particularly young adults go through this phase of identity versus role confusion. Now you're helping this child sort of, they're, as they're trying on various identities, they say, you know what, this is who I am. And I'm okay with it, right? <laughs> this identity, this role, I know who I am. I, I'm starting to develop my sense in my place in society. And that all happens because someone fought for a book. Kids are kids. They want to read about other kids. I mean, it's pretty basic. Yeah. Well, I wish we could solve this today, but I think um, I really enjoyed that part of our conversation. You, you gave a lot of really good information, so I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I will thank you later, but I'm very glad I had you on my podcast today for all of that. So besides discussing current events, what kinds of questions do you get your, from your students about the profession in general? So I'm always curious to know like why people want to go into libraries because it's always or almost always a second career or third. So you know people, I'm always interested to know what about libraries attracts people and why they move into it from a different profession. Yeah, I think again, you know, it's really because they've been inspired by a librarian and they're seeing, starting to see librarians as leaders, right? We're going out there, we're fighting, we're being very vocal. And so a lot of times the questions that I get, you know, a lot of the, my students, they really wanna know, you know, how do we build these relationships, right? Because a lot of them are so passionate and they're angry about some things that they're seeing because they know that that's not right. And one of the things I say to them, it takes time, right? As that school librarian, I'm always telling students, you have to be that librarian who's talking to that administrator that's saying, you know, it's the beginning of the school year. Can I do a brief five, 10 minute spill at the, the first professional development? I just want to talk to teachers and let them know what I'm, how I can work with them. You have to build those partnerships because in building those partnerships, you create trust. And when there's trust, you can share information. And even if people don't agree, you're, you're likely to get buy-in because they trust you, right? So it's a lot of relationship building. And so a lot of questions are around how do we build those relationships? And then it's also a question, and I get this when I do workshops as well, um, 
a lot of our teachers are saying, a lot of librarians are saying, you know, we're buying these books, you know, we, we're bringing more diversity in, but how do we get students to read it, right? <laughs> um, well, when I tell them, first of all, if a student knows that a book is, is being censored because it has some language or because it represents lifestyle, that's enough right there in and of itself to make students want to open it because the nature <laughs> of the young adult is whatever an adult tell me I can't do, I'm, I definitely want to do it. So I want to read mm -hmm. it. But I think in that promoting of the role that we have to promote reading, you promote reading, which is really promoting literacy. I think that it's not enough for us just to buy those books and put them on the shelves. We have to have conversations about these books. So, you know, we have to be brave enough as librarians to step out of our comfort zone and say, I'm gonna talk about this book that has this LGBTQ character in it, which, you know, I may not do a full lesson, but I'm gonna book talk it, right? I'm gonna let students know what's in these books, the complex uh, plots, that the narratives that's happening in these stories. And I want students to know that these stories really resemble real life, right? And so you wanna make those connections. You wanna pique students' interest. You just don't wanna buy a book and hide it and tuck away, tuck it away and hoping that students will just come across it just by serendipity, right? Uh, you want students to really engage with what's in books and you wanna get out and have conversations with students. And I tell my students all the time, you have to build relationships not only with the, the parents, with the teachers, but you have to build those relationships with the students. As a, as a librarian, I always walked up to my students or I would approach them and say, hey, what are you reading? What do you like, right? If a student told me, well, I like to cook, if we're just having a conversation about anything and they say, you know, I like to cook or I like this food or this is my favorite food. So, you know, we got some cookbooks, right? <laughs> so, you know, you build relationships. And so I think the biggest thing that, that the teachers want to know the like the ones that's working towards librarianship is you know how do you get buy-in how do you build these relationships and how do you get students more interested to read diverse books particularly when those books are not reflecting their own lives how do you get them interested in the lives of people who are dissimilar i'm so glad you said that about relationship building because i think people think well school library it's obvious that students need to visit their school library but you have to work at it because teachers have so much to do that they may not even have time or think they have time to get their kids to the school library. So I'm I'm so glad that you said that because it just also emphasizes that we're all doing the same thing. We're doing it for different audiences. School yeah. librarians have to have to do relationship building in their schools. Public librarians have to do it in their communities. Academic librarians have to do with faculty, like law librarians have to do with the lawyers. Like everyone has to do relationship building. It, it seems obvious in the profession, but it isn't always obvious the value of the library and right. what the library can offer. People don't really know what we offer. And that, so and that is the problem. They don't know what we offer. So we as librarians, we have to be more vocal. And we have to really be more transparent. We have to let people know. But first, we have to be the ones to know it. I tell librarians, I tell my students now, if you don't know what your role is as a librarian, then no one else will know either. People will tell right. you what they think your job is supposed to be. And our role is not for someone to tell us what they think our role is supposed to be. Our role is to walk in that library, that school, that public community, wherever we're going. Our role is to walk in there and, and own that space and let people know, I know what my job is and it's my role to educate you on what it is that I'm supposed to do. Great. So we've kind of talked about a lot of the, the censorship and challenges, um, but what, what do you think are the top two or three issues in libraries today, good or bad? Besides, I mean, that's obviously probably the biggest, but. So um, I definitely think one of the, the, the censorship, and I mentioned this earlier, I think that the censorship challenge, uh, issues in censorship and diversity, I think again, these are two sides of, of two different sides of the same coin. And the reason I say that is because if we're looking at who's being censored, right? Um, censors are using these challenges as an attempt. And in, in, in some states, they've been successful to try to push these, uh, to push these discriminatory or, or uh, racist ideologies into legislation, into law. So they've found a way to codify <laughs> their discriminations. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that if we look at who, who's being censored, 
the American Library Association stated in 2021, there were 1500 challenges that they've tracked. And many of these challenges have really aimed to silence the voices of African-Americans because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been conversation about, you know, you know these books have anti-police sentiments. And then there's also uh, conversations about the Black Lives Matter, um, Matter movement and critical race theory. So um, that's one group that has been challenged significantly. And then you're looking at the LGBTQIA community because uh, there's conversations about whether or not, uh, again, schools or libraries are trying to indoctrinate students because they're reading a story that has characters who are of the same sex, um, not realizing that this is society. This is this is a reflection of real life, right? Um, and so you, by getting away, get, first of all, let me say this. Censors don't realize that even in, in doing away with books by people, BIPOC communities and by people with um, various experiences and backgrounds, you don't do away with the realities of it existing in society, right? So you can ignore it and pretend like it's not there, but this is a reality, this is our society. But if we look at who's being challenged and what's being challenged, you realize, okay, this is a diversity issue, right? Because for gets going all the way back to W.E.B. Du Bois in the early 1900s, um, doing the Brownies magazines because there was a lack of the, uh, rep diverse representations for African-Americans. And we're still fighting these types of issues, right? Right when we get the momentum of bringing in more diversity, you have groups that saying, hey, get these books, these diverse books off the shelf. So I think this is the biggest issue. And I think as librarians, we need to not tone down the work that we're doing. We need to ramp it up, right? We need to increase our diversity efforts, which going back to my book, we gotta do it through policies. If we have these uh, conservatives that are brazen enough to try to codify discrimination and racist ideologies in laws, then as librarians, we need to have airtight policies that codifies our fight for equitable treatment. Because guess what? My son's father used to always tell me this, your rights end where another person's rights begin. And just because you have a problem with a certain book, doesn't mean that you get to make that problem that you have somebody else's problem. You don't get to infringe on someone else's rights. So um, again, it's this issue of democracy. What is our role as librarians? What is our enduring responsibility? And then being transparent. And then it's the issue of censorship and it is the issue of diversity, which I see as the same issue. Those are the biggest problems. And to your point about um, the rights ending, what I don't get, what they don't get, is like if you're glad your neighbor is getting a book about gay penguins banned from the library, your neighbor is telling you what you can't read. Yes. And if they can tell you what you can't read, you don't realize that. You're telling you. Yeah. You can't read that. Why are you right. having your neighbor tell you what you can read? Right, you're letting your neighbor tell you what you can read. And if you have people that can tell you what you can read, <laughs> that means that person can be more brazen and tell you what you can't do. And so I'm so vocal because this is the unraveling. If libraries represent, as Andrew Carnegie says, the cradle of democracy, this is about the unraveling of democracy because it doesn't stop there. I'm trying to think, who was the person that said this? I, 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 it'll come back to me that if they come for you, if they come for us yes. today, they'll come for you tomorrow. So if it's just the right to read today, tomorrow is going to be the right to do and the right to exist, right? That might so have been any about the Holocaust. threat. I'm sorry. It might have been about the Holocaust. Yeah. Like if they're coming, something. It was something about the Holocaust. I think. Right, so we have to learn that you can't be silent on issues of oppression, any form of oppression, because once our oppressors are successful at oppressing one area, they don't stop there because that's what an oppressor's job is supposed to do, right? I'm glad you mentioned the Holocaust. We would not have had the Russian gulags, the, uh, the Chinese, the Great Leap Forward, all of these, the Holocaust, right? Slavery. We would not have had all of these examples of oppression had once it first showed up in society, people fought back. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we don't fight back enough and become aggressive enough, you start seeing examples of aggression, I mean, of oppression across the globe. 
in different, showing up in different forms and in different ways. So again, it's, it's a book today, but it'll be your right. It'll be your right tomorrow. And it's how to think. Your neighbor is not only telling you what you can't read, they're telling you what you should be thinking. And why are you letting your neighbor do that? Even if right. you don't like that book, they're not thinking bigger picture that your neighbor is telling you, you can't read that book. And here's some other books I'm probably not going to let you read. And here's how you should think. Right. And here's absolutely. how you should vote. And goes back to my statement, you're absolutely correct. That That is... <laughs> it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But that is the message. They're telling you, you let <laughs> someone tell you how to think, right? And when you can tell people how to think, you can control people, right? When you control the narrative, it's ultimately so you can control people. I tell my son now, we go through this thing as, you know, I tell him, I said, honey, you got to tell me the whole story. If something happens, you got to tell me the whole story, good, bad, or indifferent. I said, because mommy has to make a choice based off of what you're telling me. And if you're leaving information out, that's not fair to me right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, it's a little bit manipulative, right? Because you're trying to manipulate it to get the kind of end result that you want to get. You may not get the result that you want, but you need to get the result. You're going to get the result that you need. But it's not fair to people when you don't give people all sides of a story. That's not education. That's what Paulo Freire says. That's the pedagogy of the oppressed. Oh, okay. So the next couple of questions aren't as uh, interesting or exciting as <laughs> the last few, <laughs> but I mean, they're still interesting, but they're, they're different. <laughs> um, some of my standard questions. So what professional associations are you in or which ones have you found the most useful in your career? Okay. So and it's interesting because this, the, the profession or association that I'm in, which is the one that I probably have a lot of uh, criticism about, um, but again, it's it's a it's a positive criticism. I am definitely a part of the American Library Association. I think the American Library Association is such a huge organization that sometimes it's very difficult for young librarians to navigate their way through it. So I do think that um, that's something that if the American Library Association needs to work on. I also think that the American Library Association, uh, when I think about my own experience as a librarian matriculating through uh, the my MLIS program, matriculating through my program where I received my doctorates in uh, information studies, um, I, I wasn't taught. Really, diversity wasn't a focus. I wasn't taught so many things that I think I needed to know. And if we're having conversations about the lack of diversity, if we're having conversations about these censorship challenges, these issues need to be mandated as part of the curriculum. So the American Library Association accreditates these schools for these library programs. And I think that American Library Association needs to be a little bit more, um, they need to be a little bit more uh, firm with regards to making sure, holding these schools accountable. So I'm a part of the American Library Association. I do love being in it. Um, I've, over the years, I've, I've kind of figured out a way how to navigate through it. Uh, I'm a part of EMERT. I'm the current chair, which is the Ethnic and Multicultural Information Exchange Roundtable of the ALA. Uh, I'm the current chair of that roundtable. I'm also a part of the Coretta Scott King uh, BART Roundtable, the CSK BART. Um, I will. I am going to be rotating into the position of a CSK juror, so I will be reading books and then working to decide, uh, working with my. Uh, colleagues to determine who will be the winner of the 2024 CSK Book Award. I'm also a part of the VCALA, and I do participate heavily with JCLC, which is the Joint Conference of Librarians of Color. Um, because I've also been in academia, like, I'm also part of Elise. So I'm a part of a lot of these organizations in some form or fashion. I've also been a part of ACRO because I was, you know, so sometimes I go to the conferences, uh, AASL because I'm a school librarian, but I'm most active within ALA, within EMER, CSK, um, and, and I'm, my goal is to be a little bit more active within uh, AASL with the American Association of School Librarians. I'm sorry if you could hear my, my puppy snoring. Oh, no. Even if we could, it would be fine. We need more dogs in videos, I think, in webinars and stuff. <laughs> so why did you go to library school? You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, but why, why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far, does that reasoning still hold? 
It definitely still holds. Um, again, I, I had questions, right? Um, and then, you know, I, I also want to thank, I had a teacher, I mean, I had a principal that kind of pushed me in this direction and a librarian. I was, when I was a, a classroom teacher, I would do a lot of projects with my students and I would, you know, we would do, my students would research rainforest and then I would take them to the library and, and they would have to do all of this research to, to talk about the various layers of the rainforest. And then I would have a big culminating celebration where I invited parents, where we would do the taste of the rainforest. Or if we were studying some country, you know, we would do a taste of that country after we've done research. And so there was a librarian at this one school that I worked in, was very impressed. And it was interesting because we had two libraries, but only one librarian. So this librarian was in the primary building most of the time and couldn't work with the older students. And it was so interesting because no one ever complained about it. But I was the one that was always calling this librarian saying, I wanna bring my students to the library, is it okay? And we kind of built a relationship and this librarian said to me, I, you would be great as a librarian because you're always bringing your students to the library. You're always doing research. And then I had an administrator. I don't know if they had the conversation, the administrator and this librarian, but the next year when that librarian retired, the administrator came to me and said, I want you to be the next librarian here. And I was like, you're the next librarian, right? And then I was, I was fortunate. I went back to school and got an endorsement. And at the same time, Chicago Public School had a partnership with Dominican University to recruit more librarians of color. And so they ended up paying for my MLIS degree. And so it was nice. something kind of, you know, I had questions, but then I think I was kind of just led into this kind of, you know, organically. And it still holds true, which is why I'm, I think I have continued, my experience in librarianship continues to evolve, you know, through my research, through my work, through this book, and, you know, through the, the speaking engagements that I do. And so I, I feel like so far, this has been one of the most rewarding careers for me, because not only do I get to, you know, talk about libraries, I get to share that love of books, right? I get to advocate for students' right to read, and I get to share that love of books with with children and, and of course my own son. Wow, that's great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I've kept you longer than I probably should have, um, but I've thank learned you. a ton. It's been really <laughs> great talking with you. My my beloved alma mater is very lucky to have you. <laughs> thank you. I'll make sure that they hear the podcast. <laughs> oh, great. I would love that. Thank you to Dr. Andrea Jameson for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. And thank you to my listeners who've been so supportive since I started this podcast almost two years ago. Let me know what you think. I love hearing how valuable you are finding the content that my guests and I are creating. Please comment on the episodes on thelibrarianlinkover.com or on social media at liblinkover on Twitter or the Librarian Linkover on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.